Chapter Nineteen of the Golden Silence. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading done by Jules Harlock of Mississauga, Ontario, Canada. The Golden Silence by Alice Muriel and Charles Norris Williamson chapter nineteen victoria did not wait in her room to be told that the carriage had come to take her away it was better si maeddine had said that only a few people should know the exact manner of her going a few minutes before seven therefore she went down to the entrance hall of the hotel which was not yet lighted her appearance was a signal for the arab porter who was waiting to run softly upstairs and return with her hand luggage for some moments victoria stood near the door interesting herself in a map of algeria which hung on the wall a clock began to strike as her eyes wandered over the desert and was on the last stroke of seven when a carriage drove up it was drawn by two handsome brown mules with leather and copper harness which matched the color of their shining coats, and was driven by a heavy, smooth-faced negro in a white turban and an embroidered caftan of dark blue. The carriage windows were shuttered, and as the black coachman pulled up his mules, he looked neither to the right nor to the left. It was the hotel porter who opened the door, and as Victoria stepped in without delay, he thrust two handbags after her, snapping the door sharply it was almost dark inside the carriage but she could see a white figure which in the dimness had neither face nor definite shape and there was a perfume as of aromatic amulets grown warm on a human body pardon lady i am hasina the servant of lila mabarka ben jalib sent to wait upon thee spoke a soft and guttural voice in arabic blessings be upon thee and upon thee blessings victoria responded in the arab fashion which she had learned while many miles of land and sea lay between her and the country of islam i was told to expect thee ee hoa cried the woman the little pink rose has the gift of tongues as she grew accustomed to the twilight victoria made out a black face and white teeth framed in a large smile a pair of dark eyes glittered with delight as the rumiya answered in arabic although arabic was not the language of the negress's own people she chattered as she helped victoria into a plain white gandora the white hat and hat pins amused her and when she had arranged the voluminous haik in spite of the jolting of the carriage she examined these european curiosities with interest whenever she moved the warm perfume of amulets grew stronger overpowering the faint mustiness of the cushions and upholstery never have i held such things in my hand hasina gurgled yet often i have wished that i might touch them when driving with my mistress and peeping at the passers-by and the strange finery of foreign women in the french bazaars 
victoria listened politely answering if necessary yet her interest was concentrated in peering through the slits in the wooden shutter of the nearest window she did not know algiers well enough to recognize landmarks but after driving for what seemed like fifteen or twenty minutes through streets where lights began to turn the twilight blue she caught a glint of the sea almost immediately the trotting mules stopped and the negress hasina hiding victoria's hat in the folds of her haik turned the handle of the door victoria looked out into azure dusk and after the closeness of the shuttered carriage thankfully drew in a breath of salt-laden air one quick glance showed her a street near the sea on a level not much above the gleaming water there were high walls evidently very old hiding arab mansions once important and there were other ancient dwellings which had been partly transformed for business or military uses by the french the girl's hasty impression was of a melancholy neighborhood which had been rich and stately long ago in old pirate days perhaps there was only time for a glance to right and left before a nailed door opened in the flatness of a whitewashed wall which was the front of an arab house no light shone out but the opening of the door proved that someone had been listening for the sound of carriage wheels descend lady i will follow with thy baggage said hasina the girl obeyed but she was suddenly conscious of a qualm as she had to turn from the blue twilight to pass behind that half-open door into darkness and the mystery of unknown things before she had time to put her foot to the ground the door was thrown wide open and two stout negroes dressed exactly alike in flowing white burnouses stepped out of the house to stand on either side of the carriage door raising their arms as high as their heads they made two white walls of their long cloaks between which victoria could pass as if enclosed in a narrow aisle hasina came close upon her heels and as they reached the threshold of the house the white-robed black servants dropped their arms followed the two women and shut the nailed door then despite the dimness of the place they bowed their heads turning aside as if humbly to make it evident that their unworthy eyes did not venture to rest upon the veiled form of their mistress's guest as for hasina she too was veiled though her age and ugliness would have permitted her face to be revealed without offence to mussulman ideas of propriety it was mere vanity on her part to preserve the mystery as dear to the heart of the mussulman woman as to the jealous prejudice of the man a faint glittering of the walls told victoria that the quarter she had entered was lined with tiles and she could dimly see seats let in like low shelves along its length on either side it was but a short passage with a turn into a second still shorter at the end of this hung a dark curtain which hasina lifted for victoria to pass on round another turn into a wider hall lit by an arab lamp with glass panes framed in delicately carved copper 
The chain which suspended it from cedar beams swayed slightly, causing the light to move from color to color of the old tiles, and to strike out gleams from the marble floor and ivory-like pillars set into the walls. The end of this corridor also was masked by a curtain of wool, dyed and woven by the hands of nomad tribes, tent-dwellers in the desert, and when Hesina had lifted it, Victoria saw a small square court with a fountain in the center. It was not on a grand scale like those in the palace owned by Neville Kiard, but the fountain was graceful and charming, ornamented with the carved, bursting pomegranates beloved by the moors of Granada, and the marble columns which supported a projecting balcony were wreathed with red roses and honeysuckle. On each of the four sides of the quadrangle, paved with black and white marble, there were little windows and large glass doors draped on the inside with curtains thin enough to show faint pink and golden lights. Oh, my mistress, Lela Macbarka, I have brought thy guest, cried Hesina in a loud sing-song voice as if she were chanting, whereupon one of the glass doors opened letting out a rosy radiance, and a Bedouin woman servant dressed in a striped futah appeared at the threshold. She was old, with crinkled gray hair under a scarlet handkerchief, and a blue cross was tattooed between her eyes. In the name of Lela Mabarka, be thou welcome, she said. My mistress has been suffering all day, and fears to rise, lest her strength fail for tomorrow's journey or she would come forth to meet thee, O flower of the west, as it is she begs that thou wilt come to her. But first suffer me to remove thy haik, that the eyes of Lela Mabarka may be refreshed by thy beauty. She would have unfastened the long drapery, but Hesina put down Victoria's luggage, and pushing away the two brown hands, tattooed with blue mittens, she herself unfastened the veil. No, this is my lady, and my work, Fafan, she objected. But it is my duty to take her in, replied the Bedouin woman, jealously. It is the wish of Lela Mabarka. Go thou and make ready the room of the guest. Hesina flounced away across the court, and Fafan held open both the door and the curtains, Victoria obeyed her gesture and went into the room beyond. It was long and narrow, with a ceiling of carved wood painted in colors which had once been violent, but were now faded. The walls were partly covered with hangings like the curtains that shaded the glass door, but on one side, between gold-embroidered crimson draperies, were windows and in the white stucco above showed lace-like openings patterned to represent peacocks, the tails jeweled with glass of different colors. On the opposite side opened doors of dark wood inlaid with mother-of-pearl, and these stood ajar, revealing rows of shelves littered with little gilded bottles or piled with beautiful brocades that were shot with gold in the pink light of an Arab lamp. There was little furniture, only a few low round tables or maidas, completely overlaid with the snow of mother-of-pearl. Two or three tabourets of the same material 
and at one end of the room a low divan where something white and orange yellow and purple lay half buried in cushions though the light was dim victoria could see as she went nearer a thin face the colour of pale amber and a pair of immense dark eyes that glittered in deep hollows a thin woman of more than middle age with black hair silver streaked moved slightly and held out an emaciated hand heavy with rings her head was tied round with a silk handkerchief or takrita of pansy purple she wore sororal full trousers of soft white silk and under a gold-threaded orange-coloured jacket or rila, a blouse of lilac gauze covered with sequins and opened at the neck on the bony arm which she held out to victoria hung many bracelets golden serpents of jebel amor and pearls braided with gold wire and coral beads her great eyes ringed with coal had a tortured look and there were hollows under the high cheekbones if she had ever been handsome all beauty of flesh had now been drained away by suffering yet stricken as she was there remained an almost indefinable distinction an air of supreme pride befitting a princess of the sahara her scorching fingers pressed victoria's hand as she gazed up at the girl's face with hungry curiosity and interest such as the spirit of death might feel in looking at the spirit of life thou art fresh and fair o daughter as a lily bud opening in the spray of a fountain and radiant as sunshine shining on a desert lake she said in a weary voice slightly hoarse yet with some flute-like notes my cousin spoke but truth of thee thou art worthy of a reward at the end of that long journey we shall take together thou and he and i i have never seen thy sister whom thou seekest but i have friends who knew her in other days for her sake and thine own kiss me on my cheeks for with women of my race it is the seal of friendship victoria bent and touched the faded face under each of the great burning eyes the perfume of amber loved in the east came up to her nostrils and the invalid's breath was aflame art thou strong enough for a journey lila mabarka the girl asked not in my own strength but in that which allah will give me i shall be strong the sick woman answered with controlled passion ever since i knew that i could not hope to reach mecca and kiss the sacred black stone or pray in the mosque of the holy lila fatima i have wished to visit a certain great marabout in the south the pity of allah for a daughter who is weak will permit the blessing of this marabout who has inherited the inestimable gift of baraka to be the same to me body and soul as the pilgrimage to mecca which is beyond the power of my flesh another must say for me the fataka there i believe that i shall be healed and have vowed to give a great feast if i return to algiers in celebration of the miracle had it not been for my cousin's wish that i should go with thee 
I should not have felt that the hour had come when I might face the ordeal of such a journey to the far south. But the prayer of Si Maedine, who, after his father, is the last man left of his line, has kindled in my veins a fire which I thought had burnt out forever. Have no fear, daughter. I shall be ready to start at dawn tomorrow. Does the marabout who has the gift of Baraka live near the place where I must go to find my sister? Victoria inquired rather timidly, for she did not know how far she might venture to question Si Maedine's cousin. Lila Mabarka looked at her suddenly and strangely. Then her face settled into a sphinx-like expression, as if she had been turned to stone. I shall be thy companion to the end of thy journey, she answered in a dull, tired tone. Wilt thou visit thy room now, or wilt thou remain with me until Fafan and Hesina bring thy evening meal? I hope that thou wilt sup here by my side. Yet if it pains thee to take food near one in ill health, who does not eat, speak, and thou shalt be served in another place. Victoria hastened to protest that she would prefer to eat in the company of her hostess, which seemed to please Lila Mabarka. She began to ask the girl questions about herself, complimenting her upon her knowledge of Arabic, and Victoria answered, though only half her brain seemed to be listening. She was glad that she had trusted Si Maedine, and she felt safe in the house of his cousin. But now that she was removed from European influences, she could not see why the mystery concerning Ben Halim and the journey which would lead to his house should be kept up. She had read enough books about Arab customs and superstitions to know that there are few saints believed to possess the gift of Baraka, the power given by Allah for the curing of all fleshly ills. Only the very greatest of the marabouts are supposed to have this power, receiving it direct from Allah, or inheriting it from a pious saint, father or more distant relative, who handed down the maraboutship. Therefore, if she had time and inclination, she could probably learn from any devout Muslim the abiding places of all such famous saints as remained upon the earth. In that way, by settling her wits to work, she might guess the secret if Si Maedine still tried to make a mystery of their destination. But, somehow, she felt that it would not be fair to seek information which he did not want her to have. She must go on trusting him, and by and by he would tell her all she wanted to know. Leela Makbarka had invited her guest to sit on cushions besides the divan where she lay, and the interest in her feverish eyes, which seldom left Victoria's face, was so intense as to embarrass the girl. Thou hast wondrous hair, she said, and when it is unbound it must be a fountain of living gold. Is it some kind of henna grown in thy country, which dyes it that beautiful color? Victoria told her that nature alone was the dyer. Thou art not yet affianced. That is well, murmured the invalid. Our young girls have their hair tinted with henna when they are betrothed. 
that they may be more fair in the eyes of their husbands but thou couldst scarcely be lovelier than thou art for thy skin is of pearl though there is no paint upon it and thy lips are pink as rose petals yet a little mizowak to make them scarlet like coral and coal to give thine eyes lustre would add to thy brilliancy also the hand of a woman reddened with henna is as a brazier of rosy flame to kindle the heart of a lover when thou seest thy sister thou wilt surely find that she has made herself mistress of these arts and many more canst thou tell me nothing of her lila mabarka nothing save that i have a friend who has said she was fair and it is not many moons since i heard that she was blessed with health is she happy victoria was tempted to persist she should be happy she is a fortunate woman would i could tell thee more but i live the life of a mole in these days and have little knowledge thou wilt see her with thine own eyes before long i have no doubt and now comes food which my women have prepared for thee in my house all are people of the desert and we keep the desert customs since my husband has been gathered to his fathers my husband to whose house in algiers i came as a bride from the sahara such a meal as thou wilt eat to-night mayest thou eat often with a blessing in the country of the sun Fafan, who had softly left the room when the guest had been introduced now came back with great tinkling of kalkal and monogonach the huge earrings which hung so low as to strike the silver beads twisted round her throat she was smiling and pleasantly excited at the presence of a visitor whose arrival broke the tiresome monotony of an invalid's household when she had set one of the pearly maidens in front of victoria's seat of cushions she held back the curtains for hasina to enter carrying a copper tray this the negress placed on the maida, and uncovered a china bowl balanced in a silver stand, like a giant coffee cup of Moorish fashion. It contained hot soup called cheruba, in which Hasina had put so much falfel, the red pepper loved by Arabs, that Victoria's lips were burned. But it was good, and she would not wince, though the tears stung her eyes as she drank for Lila Bambarka and the two servants were watching her eagerly. Afterwards came a couscous of chicken and farina, which she ate with a large spoon whose bowl was of tortoise shell, the handle of ivory tipped with coral. Then, when the girl hoped there might be nothing more, appeared tagine, a ragout of mutton with artichokes and peas, followed by a rich preserve of melon and many elaborate cakes iced with pink and purple sugar and powdered with little gold sequins that had to be picked off as the cake was eaten at last there was thick sweet coffee in a cup like a eggshell supported in filigreed gold for no muzzleman may touch lip to metal and at the end fafan pours rose water over victoria's fingers wiping them on a napkin of fine damask 
now thou hast eaten and drunk thou must allow thyself to be dressed by my women in the garments of an arab maiden of high birth which i have ready for thee said lilla mabarka brightening with the eagerness of a little child at the prospect of dressing a beautiful new doll fafan shall bring everything here and thou shalt be told how to robe thyself afterwards i wish to see that all is right for to-morrow morning thou must arise while it is still dark that we may start with the first dawn fafan and hasina had forgotten their jealousies in the delight of the new play they moved about laughing and chattering and were not chidden for the noise they made from shelves behind the inlaid doors in the wall they took down exquisite boxes of mother-of-pearl and red tortoiseshell also there were small bundles wrapped in gold brocade and tied round with bright green cord these were all laid out on dim-coloured carouian rug at the side of the divan and the two women squatted on the floor to open them while their mistress leaned on her thin elbow among cushions and skins of golden jackal from the sahara from one box came wide trousers of white silk like lila mabarka's from another vests of satin and velvet of pale shades embroidered with gold or silver a fat parcel contained delicately tinted stockings and high-heeled slippers of different sizes a second bundle contained blouses of thin silk and gauze and in a pearl box were pretty little chichas of sequent velvet caps so small as to fit the head closely and besides these there were sashes and ganduras and haiks white and fleecy woven from the softest wool when everything was well displayed the bedouin and the negress sprang up lithe as leopards and to victoria's surprise began to undress her please let me do it myself she protested but they did not listen or understand chattering her into silence as if they had been lively though elderly monkeys giggling over the hooks and buttons which were comical to them they turned and twisted her between their hands fumbling at neck and waist with black fingers and brown fingers tattooed blue until she too began to laugh she laughed herself into helplessness and encouraged by her wild merriment and lila mabarka's smiles and exclamations punctuated with fits of coughing they set to work at pulling out hairpins and the tortoise-shell combs that kept the romillas red-gold waves in place at last down tumbled the thick curly locks which stephen knight had thought so beautiful when they flowed round her shoulders in the dance of the shadow the invalid made her kneel just as she was in her petticoat in order to pass long ringed fingers through the soft masses and lift them up for the pleasure of letting them fall when the golden veil as leila mcbarka called it had been praised and admired over and over again the order was given to braid it into two long plates leaving the ends to curl as they would then the game of dressing the doll could begin but first the embroidered petticoat of batisse with blue ribbons at the top of its flounce 
and the simple pretty little stays had to be examined with keen interest nothing like these things had ever been seen by mistress or servants except in occasional peeps through the shuttered carriage windows when passing french shops for lila mabarka bent jellab daughter of princes of tugurt was what young arabs called vu turban she was old-fashioned in her ideas and would have no european furniture or decorations and until tonight had never consented to know a rumia much less receive one into her house she had felt that she was making a great concession in granting her cousin's request but she had forgotten her sense of condescension in entertaining an unveiled girl a christian now that she saw what the girl was like she was too old and lonely to be jealous of victoria's beauty and as si maeddine her favorite cousin deigned to admire this young foreigner Leila mabarka took an unselfish pride in each of the american girl's charms when she was dressed to all outward appearances precisely like the daughter of a high-born arab family fafan brought a mirror framed in mother-of-pearl and victoria could not help admiring herself a little she wished half unconsciously that stephen knight could see her with hair looped in two great shining braids on either side her face under the sequent chikia of sapphire velvet and then she was ashamed of her own vanity having been dressed she was obliged to prove before the three women would be satisfied that she understood how each garment ought to be arranged and later she had to try on a new gandura with a white burnous such as women wear and the haik she had worn in coming to the house hesina would help her in the morning she was told but it would be better that she should know how to do things properly for herself since only fafan would be with them on the journey and she might sometimes be busy with lila mabarka when victoria was dressing the excitement of adorning the beautiful doll had tired the invalid the dark lines under her eyes were very blue and the flesh of her face seemed to hang loose making her look piteously haggard she offered but feeble objections when her guests proposed to say good-night and after a few more compliments and blessings victoria was able to slip away escorted by the negress the room where she was to sleep was on another side of the court from that of lila mabarka but hasina took great pains to assure her that there was nothing to fear no one could come into this court and she hasina slept near by with fafan to clap the hands once would be to bring one of them instantly and hasina would wake her before dawn victoria's long narrow sleeping-room had the bed across one end in arab fashion it was placed in an alcove and built into the wall with pillars in front of gilded wood and yellow brocaded curtains of a curious oriental design at the opposite end of the room stood a large cupboard like a buffet beautifully inlaid with mother-of-pearl and along the length of the room ran shelves neatly piled with bright-coloured bed-clothing or feriachias 
Above these shelves, texts from the Koran were exquisitely illuminated in red, blue, and gold, like a frieze, and there were tinseled pictures of relatives of the Prophet and of Muhammad's angel horse, Borak. The floor was covered with soft, dark-colored rugs, and on a square of white linen was a huge copper basin full of water, with folded towels laid beside it. The bed was not uncomfortable, but Victoria could not sleep. She did not even wish to sleep. It was too wonderful to think that tomorrow she would be on her way to Sadie. End of chapter 19